You're listening to The Lively Show, episode 78. Welcome to The Lively Show. I'm your host, Jess Lively, and this blogcast is designed to uplift, inspire, and add a little extra intention to your everyday. Welcome to the show, guys. Thank you so much, as always, for listening. This episode is sponsored by Squarespace.com. Squarespace is a great place to go if you want to build a beautiful blog or website. At the end of the show, we'll be doing a mini interview with Katie Bryant of katiebryant.com. In the meantime, feel free to go over to squarespace.com lively for 10% off Squarespace service. And now let's get on to today's show. This is the first two-part episode of The Lively Show. First, we're going to speak today with Hillary Rushford, and next week we'll be speaking with Jesse Arteague. These two women have a great topic to share, 27 ways they have made money online. This is obviously going to be a great topic for anyone who is a business owner already or who is interested in making online income. But at the same time, as my associate producer Ashley has told me, who is not a business owner online, she is fascinated about how people do make money. So hopefully this will be interesting for both business owners and non-business owners alike. Of course, this 27 ways to make money online is not the only ways to make money online. This is actually a session that Jesse and Hillary taught at Alt Summit. And as I was watching them share this information, I knew that I wanted to bring it to Lively Show listeners. Because there's 27 different ways, that kind of gets a little bit hard to keep track of. So we've made a free printable for you. You can print it out at JessLively.com slash Hillary Rushford in order to follow along and take notes on the things that Hillary says this week and Jesse will say next week. And now a little bit about Hillary. Hillary's website is DeanStreetSociety.com. She teaches about style and business. She'll share all the ways that she does that, of course, in this episode. Let's go to the show. Hillary, thank you for coming on the show today. I'm so honored to be on the lively show. I am pumped because I have wanted to have you on the show for a little while, but haven't found the right conversation to have. And then we went to Alt Summit and I saw you and Jesse speak at Alt Summit about the incredibly enticing topic of 27 ways to make money online. This light bulb went off in my head as I was doing the dance party in the beginning. <laughs> yes. <laughs> we love a good dance party. Yes. In the dance party, I was like, this has to be a lively show. And I'm so excited to have you guys share your wisdom with all of us, especially for those who weren't able to be in your conference during Alt Summit. Yeah, we're so excited. We definitely geek out about this topic and feel like there's a lot of people that can be blessed by this conversation. So I'm just so excited we can teach more people. Before we get to the money making, let's start with your background. Tell us how you got to making money online. Okay, well, the short story of the long story is that my background was in musical theater. I did a Broadway tour, 42nd Street, and a lot of years with the Radio City Rockettes. And wait, wait, wait. Whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> you were on the Rockettes? Yeah, I, t- I was a singer in the Rockette show for like four or five years. Really? Yeah. <laughs> Wait, so you were not a Rockette because you're kind of short. I would think you have to be very tall. Yes, I'm only 5'4". I'm not one of the girls who kicks her face, but <laughs> the show kind of alternates numbers. Like the Rockettes do number and then the ensemble. Rockettes ensemble. Don't tell anyone, but we have more fun because we can play more like, we can make eye contact. Like, the Rockettes just look forward the whole time. Like, they don't even get to make eye contact with one another. So I loved doing that. 
And I just loved my career in general. I loved performing. That's what I always wanted to do. And my life totally exceeded my wildest expectations in getting a Broadway tour right after college, getting on a plane to New York for the first time. And I loved that throughout my 20s. But long story short, I just started to get to the point where the love for performing was being outweighed by the hatred of the horrifying day jobs that I had to do in between that just felt so soul-sucking temping and catering and waitressing and I just couldn't do it anymore and really felt like I was just ready for the next level. And I always thought that we'd be getting my master's, my PhD, teaching theater at a university, directing and choreographing. But I was so in love with my life here in Brooklyn and I realized I would have to move someplace else and start over to live that life I'd envisioned. That's what I thought I'd always wanted. And the time came and I didn't want to leave Brooklyn. I didn't want to leave my life and be headed into my 30s and start over someplace. So instead, I was like, okay, I think I need a new thing to do with my life. And I literally sent an email to my girlfriends entitled Prayer for What the Hell I'm Doing with My Life. And I was like, I am taking submissions if anyone would like to tell me what I should be when I grow up. And it was a confluence of a lot of different little drops in the buckets. I'd taken a temp job over the holidays. I had time to read blogs, which I'd never had before. I started getting into blogs. A bunch of little things all fell together. My friends all pointed out similar things in this email that they sent back. And basically, there is a blog post by Laura Casey called Making Things Happen. Love it. She was on the show. Yes, that my friend Emily sent me on February 1st, 2011. And I burst into tears at my cubicle and was like, oh my God, this girl has my dream life. She is what I call being a peacock, where you have a tail feather of things you do. And it was such an aha moment for me. I mean, literally this all happened within a few moments. I was like, oh my gosh, even the reality shows that I love, like Bethany Frankel and Rachel Zoe and Tori Spelling, they're all women who are a peacock. They have a whole tail feather of things they do. They aren't a lawyer, a doctor. They aren't a one word job description. My dad, he's not an entrepreneur, but he's very entrepreneurial. He teaches in a university, but he speaks and he writes and he has a magazine and he runs events. And so he was constantly doing all these different things. And I realized this is so the left and right brain that I've always wanted. When I was in college, I was like, do I want to be an actor or do I want to like have a corner office and wear pencil skirts and clip clop heels? And now I'm like, oh, that's because you were meant to be a creative entrepreneur. You always had the left brain, business sense, marketing savvy, but you couldn't picture just spending every day in an office because you also had this right brained musical theater, tap dancer, creative side. And back when we were in college, that just wasn't really a thing quite yet. So it honestly came to me today. I was off and running. Like I never looked back. I think I had the name Dean Street Society. A few days later, I had the URL. I was figuring out how to build a website. I launched six months later and that was four years ago. You see Lara Case and you're like, ding, ding, ding. This is what I'm supposed to do. So you get this idea to be a peacock. I'm sure a lot of people want to be peacocks that are listening. So how did you figure out what your peacock feathers would be? All of my friend's advice was all around style, which is also worthy of noting. I did not feel stylish. I did not self-identify as that. I didn't read Vogue magazine. I didn't follow Fashion Week. What it actually came from was because I never had any money, apropos to our conversation today, I never had any money as an actor. Even though you're making good money on a Broadway tour with the Rockettes, it's only for a season and then it ends 
and you're on unemployment, which doesn't pay anything. So it was very much this feast or famine. So I would shop at Forever 21 and Target and have friends say, oh my gosh, you look so cute. I'd be like, oh, it's Forever 21. They're like, how do you find anything there? I never can find anything good. How do you make things look so cute? And these style blogs is what I was reading to bide my time at this, I call it the place where dreams go to die. Like this was really the most boring office you ever could have worked at. So I would just read style blogs all day. And so that was just all the little things that kind of folded together that friends were like, I think you should help women organize their closets or do shopping on a budget. And people had kind of mentioned that in the past, but I thought of it as, oh, great. Yet another side gig for 50 bucks to put up on Craigslist. I've tried that. It's so exhausting. It really was that the concept of entrepreneurship was what clicked. Oh, this could be a legit business. I thought entrepreneurship was startups in Silicon Valley, like dot coms, guys in techie t-shirts, drinking a lot of coffee. I didn't realize it could be people like me, which might sound odd if you're listening because now it's such a thing. But honestly, four years ago, I didn't know anyone who was doing this. It was so not on my radar. Like I was like, what is a life coach? What is a health coach? What is a business coach? I didn't know anyone who was doing that. And so Laura was just this first little glimpse into, wait a minute, this girl has a background in musical theater and now she runs a business and she employs other women and they have this cute little office and she wears a bunch of different hats. Who knew that that was a thing? (laughs) Yeah, that is awesome. And it is so funny that you guys both did have that musical background. Her epic story, for those that want to listen to it, is at JessLively.com slash Lara Casey. Okay, so you come up with this idea to do style, not because you thought I'm the most stylish person, but because your friends told you over and over again, you should help women who have trouble in this area. Mm -hmm. How do we get from peacock feathers to TV show? One of the women, the other temp at the place where dreams go to die, the miserable office was a former actor turned business manager. And she never saw me do anything, but knew of my background and was there for that journey of, I'm going to quit this job and start a business. So six months after I launched, I got an email from her. Hey, here's a casting breakdown. You know, they're looking for a stylist for this show. Would you be interested in being submitted? And I went and and booked it. It was my my first audition. And at the callback, it was for a co-host spot. So there was going to be two And at the callback, I was pretty sure I got it because it was me and five comedians and it was a style show. And I was like, I'm pretty sure I'm the only stylist. It was two guys and three girls. And the other three girls looked at me when I walked in and they all turned to each other and they're like, we really should have thought about the fact that this was for a style show. (laughs) We're all dressed like comedians. (laughs) Of course, they were being hilarious about it, but it was a really good point. None of them looked very stylish. And I had on a super cute outfit. What were you wearing? I was wearing a pink Chanel pencil skirt that I got for like $10 at a thrift store, which was really a powerful little moment for me because when I booked my Broadway tour 10 years before, which was also my first professional audition and booked it right out of the gate, I was wearing a really darling outfit that people would comment about to me years later, like, I remember seeing you you at that audition. You were wearing this and this and this, and I'd gotten it at the Salvation Army, like the night before the audition. So apparently, very inexpensive thrifted clothes (laughs) get me good job positions. (laughs) And so you know where it comes from, but they don't. They just see a stylish person wearing a beautiful skirt. Yes, absolutely. 
So you got the job. How long did that last? We pretty much got broken up with on a post-it like three months later. It was supposed to be a year-long gig. It was supposed to change our lives. Their goal was like a million viewers. They just like really ramped it up. And I'll be totally honest. They didn't tell any of the shows from the beginning that there were more shows being created than there were spots. And so they basically set it up from the beginning that somebody was going to get canceled. We were just with the smallest magazine and both of our leaders at that magazine, one left on maternity leave and the other left to start her own blog. So suddenly there was like no one at the helm and it just kind of made sense that we were going to be the ones that they got cut. But I have been very honest. I share pretty openly in my book. I wrote a book, just an ebook about my first two years in business because that's what I was always getting so many questions about. And I was like, I need to write this down when it's fresh in my mind. And I really remember how hard this is. I remember all the stats, you know, exactly how much I made and all of that. And I talk in there about the fact that that job was so hard because I felt like David and Goliath. I was trying so hard to stand up for myself with like little bitty Dean Street Society. I'm six months into a new business, but I'm like really clear on what my vision is. And it was the complete opposite of my co-host's brand and what the agency wanted. One just quick example was they were like, let's do a bit. It was actually very similar. If anyone was familiar this spring with Kathy Griffin leaving Fashion Police. Yeah, wait, why did she leave? I know there was a whole thing about the Academy Awards. Well, her example that I read that I felt so deeply connected to was they wanted to do a segment called Horror Score. And she was like, I just don't see any validity in rating women who are well-dressed on how whorish they look. She's like, I understand comedy and context. If Miley Cyrus is wearing gaff tape over her nipples, yes, you're welcoming the jokes. But if someone just puts on a really nice dress and does their best to look lovely, and then we're going to say they look like a whore because they are naturally endowed with large breasts or something, that to me is just mean and demeaning to women, and it's not funny. And one of the examples on the show I was on was they wanted to do Guess That Bikini Body, and it was going to be celebs from the back. And I said, well, what's the point? Like, is it uh, what kind of photos are these going to be? Are they going to be good or bad? And they said, oh, well, like, you know, some of them will be good. Some of them will be bad. And I said, well, what makes them bad? Is it the style or the body? He's like, oh, yeah, we'll find like some bad body ones. You know, I said, well, I don't want to make fun of a woman because she has cellulite, which just happens because then tomorrow I'm going to be walking into some woman's home as a personal stylist and she's going to be changing clothes in front of me and talking about her 20 pounds of baby weight. And then a week later, she's going to watch me laughing at some well-paid celebrity because God gave her cellulite, just like my client. That's not funny. There's no validity and there's no way I can keep my integrity if I'm laughing about cellulite. That's just so mean. There's no purpose in that. But to them, snark sells. And so it was a constant battle of my having to say, I don't feel comfortable with that. I'm sorry. Could we, I have a client whose child has Down syndrome. Could we please not say that Chris Humphreys looks like a child with Down syndrome? Could you make fun of Chris Humphreys in some other way without demeaning children with Down syndrome? It was just that kind of thing every day. And things along those lines have come up in other ways, which I think the takeaway for anyone listening would just be that there is a definite downside to collaborating. And this is something I was actually just talking about with some of my coaching clients in business that you feel like, 
oh, those people have a bigger audience, they have a bigger platform. This is totally something I want to be on board with, but it can really dilute your message or confuse your message or have you spread too thin. It was a really fun experience in a lot of ways and a really hard experience. It was a real blessing and a real challenge, but needless to say, when it ended, it was hard for the money fact. It was a real blow to, oh my gosh, I thought I had a solid income for the next year. But emotionally and integrity-wise, I was like, oh, thank God. That was going to be so exhausting to have to fight through for the next nine months. Yeah, your values save the day. But then you're without money. So how do you start making that money? Or should we just use the 27 ways to make money to explain how you did that? Let's go through the 27 ways. The 27 ways title came about because Jesse Arteague of Style and Pepper, who's one of my dearest friends, We get questions all the time about how we make money and our brands on the outside, if you go to our websites, if you go to our Instagram accounts, they look pretty similar. And so we were having a conversation one night over wine about the different ways that we monetize and we realized, you know what, we make our core money in completely different ways. And we think it would shock most people who come to our websites and think, oh, they kind of do the same thing. And you're like, actually, we do totally different things. Like behind the scenes, it's so different. So we're like, how many ways have we actually made money? And we just opened up a Google Doc and started making a list. And we got to 27 ways that between the two of us, we had hustled over the years, me for three and a half, her for seven, I think, to come up with ways to pay our rent and ways to build our business. I will tell you, I've got 16 ways. And then I know, Jess, you're going to follow up with Jessie and hear all of her ways. So a lot of these are our overlap. We both did them, but maybe it looked different. And then some of them are things I've just done or she's just done. So the way I started my business was with personal clients or coaching. And so in each of these categories, by the way, I'm going to give a question so that for someone listening, part of my heart would be that you would get to the end of this podcast and be like, I have some really good ideas now for how to monetize. Also, I'm clear on some things I don't want to do. (laughs) I'm clear on some mistakes and some best practices, but I really want this to be like you end and you're like, I have some really juicy ideas now. With personal clients and coaching, my question to you listening would be, what are you an expert on that you can mentor or coach someone else on? I did one-on-one styling. About a year or two later, that expanded into one-on-one on the business side. Um, I just started getting 50% of my emails were, how do I do what you're doing? How do I start a business? And I was like, I don't have time to answer these for free over email, but I guess I'll just tell people they could hire me and then see if they do. And they did. So then I was doing one-on-one clients on both sides. For me personally, one-on-one clients did not make me happy because I love teaching one to many. I'm guessing, Jess, you're the same because of the podcast. Like that's what feels fulfilling is hundreds and thousands of people can listen to this one conversation we're going to have as opposed to if only one person could listen in. I will say, because I think I have a similar business background of making money like you more than Jesse. And I'll say that I too just started getting those requests to do the coaching and that's where the coaching began. And I do think, even though we both like one to many, one-to-one is really powerful for building to that other place. And I think it's possibly a rite of passage for a lot of people. I completely agree with that. I think that doing the one-on-ones is what allows you to create a group program or group course down the road. 
because you're like, this is the stuff that I said till I'm blue in the face. This is what comes up in every session, what everyone hits up on resistance with. So I'm so grateful that I did the one-on-ones, but eventually for me, I realized, and a big thing with monetizing is just cluing into, am I really jazzed when it comes time to do this? Or do I feel kind of exhausted? I just started to feel exhausted by the one-on-ones because I'd always be like, I wish there was a camera crew here. Like so many more people could benefit (laughs) from what I'm sharing if we could just film this. That's absolutely why I think now two of the three main products that I have right now were born out of the wisdom and the insight that I gleaned from doing the one-on-ones. So one-on-one coaching on both sides is way one and two. And then on the business side, that also led into small group coaching. I used something called Happy Hour Coterie. It's had a couple iterations, but one of the iterations was true small group coaching where it was like six women on a Google Hangout call. Now that's unsustainable because the demand is too high, but I also loved that idea of can you get a few women in a room on a call on a Google Hangout or men and coach them on this topic where now you're helping more people during that time and it's also more affordable for them. But where I reached the place even there, and the same thing for one-on-ones, is at this stage, my mother recently um, called me and she was like, oh, this woman was in my office and one of my colleagues told her what you do and I told her you were in town and she said, ask her if she'll come over to my house. So my mom was like, would you want to do that while you're home? And I was like, no, I don't do one-on-ones anymore. And she's like, well, is there any amount of money she could pay you to do it? And I was like, absolutely not. (laughs) Because the amount that she would have to pay to make it feel worth it to me, then I would feel the weight and the guilt of, I don't think she's going to feel like that's worth it. You know, let's say $10,000 for three hours. Can I really deliver $10,000 worth of value one-on-one? Wouldn't she be better served if she could use that money to also go shopping? Then you reach the tipping point where you're like, I feel like I wouldn't feel good about charging that price. I felt the same thing with the small group coaching of like, okay, what I would have to charge to make it worth it. I now feel like I'd rather just be able to create a really big group coaching program. So right now I have like 300 women in my program but it's more affordable for them. And so you kind of find that sweet spot. Does that make sense? Yes. Okay. So to recap where we've been so far, we're at number three from what you've just shared. So can you say one, two, and three again, just because audio, it's easier to keep having these repeated to you. Absolutely. For me, these all fall under personal clients or coaching. And number one for me was one-on-one on the style side. Number two was one-on-one on the business side. And the reason I separate those two out is because there's a lot of people that come to me at least that are multi-passionate, that have multiple things they're great at. You've done programs like business with intention and life with intention. You know, you have both sides of that. And so for me, when I branched out into business, that was a whole new revenue stream. That was like a whole new way to make money, even though it was technically the same format, but it was a whole new topic. Number three for me, also on the business side, was I moved from one-on-one to small group. I've never done that style side because I didn't think it would be as effective, but I moved to the small group. And now that revenue stream has transitioned from six women who are all on a Google Hangout where they can see one another to 300 women listening into a coaching call. And the reasons I've really made those steps along the way were when it comes to pricing, you do kind of reach that sweet spot of this doesn't feel worth it to me at this price, 
But if I raise my price more, I might start to feel a little guilty and inauthentic. Like, man, I'm not quite sure it's really worth that to that client. And that's when I've had to like reframe and be like, okay, well, if I don't feel that 10,000 is worth three hours for one-on-one, what else can I offer this person that's more affordable for them and more fulfilling for me? Awesome. Okay, so what's number four? Number four, five, and six all fall under styling, either on set or on location. And so my question to you here would be, what skills do big brands or local businesses need your help with? So this for me was going offline and actually showing up physically for people. So number four is I styled photo shoots for individuals. I hosted something called photo shoot style parties with my photographer, where again, we were trying to make it more fun and more affordable for them and more profitable for us by bringing six women together. I help style them all for the day. She shoots all of them. We've got music playing. So we tried that for a little while. I was also styling photo shoots for brands and companies. I went to the Hamptons or would be in a studio dressing men or women for some small brand. And then I also did set and prop styling, which was just sort of a saying yes when an unexpected opportunity came my way. I didn't know anything about set or prop styling, but I got offered a gig with a photographer I liked that paid really well. And I was just like, I'm going to figure that out. <laughs> like, <laughs> it can't be that hard. I do want to go to Nantucket for a week. And yes, I would like to be paid that much money. So I will Google the ish out of that and figure out what to do. <laughs> so I certainly didn't set out to be a set or a prop stylist. But when they said, hey, do you happen to do this or know anyone who does? Actually, his question was, do you know anyone who does this? And I said, I could do that. <laughs> <laughs> which I didn't really know what I was doing, but it, I needed the money and I did totally make it happen. He actually just texted me yesterday and offered me another job. I'm not doing that anymore. There's a fine line between don't show up and totally suck and ruin someone else's shoot or experience because you were faking it. But on the other hand, when can you take the leap and be like, listen, this is about understanding photography and marketing and having an eye I know all those things, even though I haven't done this before, I'm confident in my abilities. I think there's a lot of people going, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, how do I know which one am I if they're getting this opportunity? Do you have any litmus tests or indicators of whether you're faking it or whether you need to fake it till you make it and you can really do it? This sounds a little bit woo-woo and I'm not super woo-woo, but a lot of the women in my mastermind group are. And so I'm, be I'm becoming more influenced by the woo-woo sphere of entrepreneurship. I feel like the advice that I've heard along this realm has just a lot to do with trusting your gut and kind of that quiet knowing of, okay, you're going to feel fear or anxiety, but does it feel tightening and constricting or does it feel a little bit expansive? Like, is your stomach totally in knots of dread? Or is it actually the butterflies that still feel uncomfortable, but they're actually kind of light and spacious? This kind of goes back to what I said in the first grouping of when your prices are too high for it to just feel good for you, that it's the same thing with pricing. You price a little high to scare yourself, but not so high that in your heart of hearts, you really don't feel like you're worth it. Or in your heart of hearts, you really feel like you might've screwed up that shoot for them. Like you might've kind of done a crappy job. 
And I just think no one else can really answer that for you. And there's some people on the spectrum that are always going to doubt themselves more. And there's some people on the spectrum that are always going to BS more. I think as long as you're trying to be honest about what's my tendency, do I need to take more leaps? Does fear get in my way way too often? Maybe I need to start saying yes more. Or am I just BSing and faking a lot and I'm not getting hired back for things? I'm kind of getting a lot of refunds. I don't really have a lot of great testimonials. Maybe I'm not really giving high enough quality. Whereas to me, I also didn't know, I should even back up and say, the first time I got asked to style a photo shoot, I had the same sense of, I don't know how to do that. What do I not know? I don't want to show up and feel like an idiot. But I showed up and the photographer and the creative director afterwards both sent me emails and were like, you were so professional. We were so impressed. And that gave me the confidence to be like, okay, I did instinctively know what to do. If I'd ended that and I'd been a little bit like, "Eh, I think they kind of regretted hiring me, then that might have affected my also not being like, well, now let me speak up for set and prop styling. I personally have found out along the way when I try something, and I know this, like, I don't know, you might want to punch me in the face, but usually (laughs) when I try something, I find out I can do it. And maybe it's because all the things I know I can't do, like cook or sew or remember to take my, you know, prescriptions. (laughs) Like there's plenty of things in life that I suck at. Maybe it's because the things I am leaping at are in my wheelhouse, but I think it just is so personal and there really isn't a litmus test other than cluing into your intuition. And also I think people around you. Now I was not talking to people around me, but as my story goes on, like you'll hear me say, I really think bringing on people to give you feedback and wisdom is the number one thing that I wish I had done earlier. I wish I had gotten a coach. I wish I had had more mentors, more sisterhood, more colleagues. I didn't really have anyone to ask, but I think now If I was to check in with people, I would get people who really do know my strengths or who really do know the questions to tap into my intuition, which of course, I I don't know all of you lovely people listening, so I can't give you that personal advice the way that your business coach or your best friend who's also in the entrepreneur space could. Intuition is never too woo for the Lively Show. (laughs) (laughs) Let's move on. What's number seven? Okay, so seven and eight both fall under teaching, which I think this is, what do you have knowledge on that you can teach live or virtually or evergreen? So it's more of the group context. I would say coaching, you're giving personalized advice and teaching, you're saying, you're thinking about your college courses. You walked in and there was already a curriculum. It wasn't based upon which students joined the English class that semester. Whereas if you work with your personal trainer, that's based on what do you want to work on? What are your goals? What's your metabolism? So it's less personalized, but still coming from that place of knowledge. So for me, this has been twofold. This really is now the bulk of my business. It started off really small, but this really is now, first and foremost, what I do is I'm a teacher. I'm like two-thirds a teacher and one-third a coach. The teaching for me was both one-time live classes. Honestly, I was at a place where I was like, I need more money this month. Like, I'm not going to make my rent. What can I create to make money? And I literally created, like put up a page overnight. I think I did my Photoshop's basics and organizing your life online was just like the the two things I put out there. I think they were $37. It was a one hour class. You tuned in live and, you know, I had 
PowerPoint presentation or whatever, I probably made like two or three or four thousand dollars or something like that in you know a week of having that live and that to me was huge like that paid my rent that was totally the money I needed and I was like so exhilarated because that was the first time I had just had an idea in a moment of desperation stayed up until two in the morning creating the page and putting it out there and then the next day found out people wanted to buy it that came from I had taken Blog Shop, a much more intensive class on Photoshop. I'd flown out to LA and spent all this money and all these days. But I realized that there was actually just one component of Photoshop that I was using again and again. And it was just how to create marketing graphics, basically how to put text on photos. In one of the classes that I was in, or multiple of the classes I was in that had Facebook groups online, business classes, I would be posting that I had one-on-one sessions coming up or I'd be posting these different little things and I would always get people commenting, man, you make the cutest graphics. I wish I knew how to make graphics like this. Who does your graphics for you? Like, oh, I do them myself. And so it was just a little thing that I was aware of. This is a pain point for other entrepreneurs. It wasn't that they literally said, would you teach me how to do that? But they would compliment me on what I created, bemoan that they couldn't do it themselves and wonder if there was someone they could hire. And I actually was like, you know what? You don't want to have to hire someone because learning how to do it yourself is how you can make the money at midnight when you're like, wait a minute, I have an idea for tomorrow. I'm just going to put it out there. If you're relying on someone else, you've got to find them. You've got to wait for them to get back. You've got to go through all this communication. And in the beginning, you just don't always have that time. You're like, no, I really mean I need this money in a week. I don't have a week to wait to get it out there. So I started out with Dean Street Seminars, um, which was my version of these one-hour classes, and that now has grown. One of my Dean Street Seminars was my Instagram with Intention class, that that now has grown and grown and grown, and now is a massive revenue stream for us. But it just started out as I grew my Instagram account from five to 10,000 over the last five months. I'm totally geeking out about this. I'm really obsessed with it. Other people seem to be obsessed with Instagram and asking me questions, so I'm just going to throw it out there. And in that case, I didn't even have to have testimonials that I had taught it before for it to sell like hotcakes because my Instagram profile was my social proof. I didn't have to say I helped 10 clients lose weight. I could say I changed my body. Here's my before and after. I grew my Instagram account from 5,000 to 10,000. I'll show you exactly what I did. I want a bonus tip here for those listening because I am selfishly wanting to hear this too. (laughs) So what's your biggest tip for us that is the most helpful thing we can do to help grow our Instagram accounts? One thing I would say is there's two ways to look at your profile. So one is the individual photos. I follow you, Jess, and you posted an hour ago. I see just that photo. But if I come across the Lively Show podcast and I'm like, oh, Jess mentioned she's on Instagram or I wonder if she's on Instagram and I go over to check you out. Now I'm looking at your whole profile. So I'm seeing the way that all of your photos work together like a J. Crew catalog, you know, like a spread in a magazine. And so looking at your photos as what makes someone like or comment one at a time and want to keep following They aren't like, oh, this photo sucks. I'm going to go unfollow her. But then also, how do they work together so that someone looks at your whole profile and says, I want to hit the follow button. I want more of that. And there's so much that is visually beautiful on Instagram 
that I think we just all need to be challenging ourselves to be growing in that, to be doing that better, to be taking better photos, to be more aesthetically aware, to be growing in our visual taste. My profile is so much better than it was a year ago. I'm not a photographer. I'm not a creative director, but I'm constantly looking at people that inspire me and really trying to figure out how to do it better. So it isn't happenstance. It isn't haphazard. I'm not just snapping something and putting it up. I really am seeing it as one individual photo and then also how it fits into the collection and considering both when I post something. Love it. Thank you for that little second of sidebar. So going back in, I just really wanted to hear what you had to say on that. Totally. So for me, it was these one-time live classes. Now that class is actually recorded because it's more than I could teach in one hour. So I now have it, there's a whole eight module course inside. And then eventually we will turn it to be evergreen where it isn't just, hey, I'm teaching this live and you can buy it today. This will be selling in the background. So there's also like a bunch of stepping stones there in how that's become a small to a medium to a large revenue stream. That to me is is seven, which was the idea of like this one-time live class that started out with the Dean Street Seminars. And number eight for me is an e-course, which for me also had a live component. So style and stylability was the first thing I offered on the style side that wasn't a one-on-one session. And it's the only thing I have now on the style side. Because as I said, I got so tired of repeating the same things to all my one-on-one clients. I realized I could just turn it into a curriculum because all women needed to hear the same things. And I also realized there was a better way to teach when it wasn't reactionary based on what they were pulling out of their closet, but it was actually a path that I was guiding them through. So the teacher nerd in me was like, I bet I would be really disappointed by my students' retention six months after our one-on-one session, I think I could get them to retain better if I laid it out in a class. So I did my first e-course, which can be just, again, that evergreen e-course, or it can have live components. So for me, style and stylability only happens once or twice a year. There are live calls with me. It isn't something where you could just join, you know, on the 15th of any month and dive into it. And again, that allows me to help a lot more people And similar to the Dean Street seminars, the price has grown as the content has grown. So the first time, I think it was $97. It was four videos. They weren't very well shot. I was creating the content every single week. Like I wasn't ahead. I was like, crap, I've got to write this and like get these emails out and get this video edited. (laughs) Now there's 10 modules. They're much better filmed. There's a, a membership group. There's a workbook. Like it's so much better. So that's one of my other monetization tips is I think a lot of people these days are like, oh, well, I saw that so-and-so has a class for $2,000. So maybe I should come up with a class for $2,000. Well, unless you're like, hey, I left the law world and now I'm going to create a program for how entrepreneurs can be legally protected and I'm a lawyer, yes. If you've like gone to Harvard Law, you can charge me $2,000 for your class. But if you're just like, hey, I launched a health business. And now I have a $2,000 class on how to revolutionize your health. Probably you're going to be setting yourself up for failure because you just don't have the validity to back you up. And also your program is probably not that great. Or if you've killed yourself creating the best freaking program ever, you've spent a year building that program, tens of thousands of dollars, and you don't even know if anybody wants to buy it yet. It's actually a Japanese car manufacturing system that there's a ton of different books 
Kaizen. Yes, Kaizen or like the Lean Startup or Scrum. There's like so many books that all kind of go back to this idea of iterating as quickly as possible. Before I spend a ton of time creating the perfect Instagram class, I'm going to throw out a low priced one hour class and see if people are interested. They are awesome. I'm going to make this class better and I'm going to raise the price. Still works. Awesome. I'm going to make it even better. And you kind of keep doing these iterations so you can make more money more quickly. Even if it's a small amount of money, you're at least making money because it's lower price point and you aren't leaking the time and the revenue investment before you know that you even have a market. And that's a painful mistake I see a lot of people make is they spend so much time working on their business before they launch it or on their revenue stream or their product. And then they get it out there and it's like crickets, like nobody buys. But now they've already invested $10,000 and four months in getting it up. So it's hard to do because it takes a lot of faith and you just have to like rip the bandaid off a lot and just be like, this might suck, but I'm just going to put it out there and see, I'm not going to charge a lot of money and see what the response is before I pour more time and money into it. And that's exactly what I did with Life with Intention online, my course. So I did the $97 live, simple version, your step seven of ways to make money, the live feed it to you through the internet webinar kind of situation, and then upgraded from there to what is now Life with Intention online, which is much more robust in six weeks than the whole live component teaching thing. So I can also say from my own experience there, and that's pretty much my flagship course. And I'm guessing Style and Styleability is your flagship as well? Yeah, it's the only thing I have now on the style side, which is a little bit interesting. And we've thought about expanding into other things. But my coach's perspective, which is genius, was there's 8 billion people on the planet. So let's say there's 4 billion women. And you've had 300 of them go through style and styleability. Before we create something else for those 300 to buy next, or for the rest of the 4 billion that might not want style and styleability, let's make sure we've gotten all the rest of them that do. (laughs) Because every time you launch it, you make it better and it gets easier. Your list grows, your buzz grows, you have more testimonials, you have more activity in the Facebook group, you've worked out the kinks. So he really helped rein me in from these 16 ways, which is how I survived for the first few years. And I'm not ashamed of it. And in some ways I wouldn't change anything because I survived. (laughs) I built a profitable business with no background and no help and no savings safety net or anything like that. No trust fund. But I was just in total survival mode being like, I need more money tomorrow. What can I create? I need more money this month. What can I create? He has helped me really rein it into what are the three things that make you the most money that bring you the most joy that we can really leverage on a higher level because you're not leaking all this time and energy on like, well, this thing makes me 2000 bucks and this thing made me 5000 last year. Let's take all that time and energy back and pour it into up-leveling these things. And that's what happened for us with Instagram. We 10x that launch. So 10x meaning if you made $100 from your first launch and $1,000 from your next launch of the same product, you 10 x it. You put the same product out there, but you made 10 times the amount of money. We 10 x our launch from November to January because, bless him, my coach was like, you're quitting 13 of these 16 things. <laughs> didn't say it that flat out, but that's how he like mind wrangled me throughout our sessions. <laughs> and like you said, 
it is part of the process. A lot of these things that you try over time give you that clarity for the other stuff down the road. We're going to get to the mind wrangling and that stuff later, but we're still deep in the middle (laughs) of your 16. I'm going to go through these other ones a little faster because they were all smaller things for me, but they all were totally valid. So speaking, you know, my question for you is what topics can you speak on, whether that's to get paid or just to get in front of your ideal customer or audience to monetize that traffic in other ways. So sometimes the speaking is paid and sometimes it's the traffic driver that generates the sale of one of these other you know, monetization ways. So for me, it was speaking sometimes paid, sometimes not at conferences or my alma mater or small business events in the city, et cetera. So that for me was number nine. Number 10 and 11 are under writing, which would be what topics can you write on? Again, whether to get paid or just in front of your ideal customer or audience to drive that traffic and monetize it in other ways. For me, it was twofold. I wrote a book, The Four-Part Entrepreneur Cocktail, again, right at my two-year anniversary. So it was super fresh in my mind. That was never super money generating. Let me actually go back to nine real quick on the speaking. That for me hasn't been really a big monetization stream. Jesse in the next episode will tell you that is big for her. For me, the amount of time and money and energy that it takes to pack a suitcase, get on a plane, write a speech, get a hotel room, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I thought, oh, I want to do a lot of speaking. And then I was like, whew, speaking is exhausting. Can I just sit in front of my computer and make money and then like get on a plane when I want to go on vacation? Speaking was something I thought I wanted to do more of, realized not so much. Kind of similar with the book. The book was not a big monetization stream. I just literally needed to birth it. Like it was exploding from my head and I just needed to get it on paper. I just couldn't wait to write it down. But I didn't really have everything in place to do a big rollout. Like I was still kind of in the place of I just didn't only had so much time to make money and I didn't feel like selling a low priced ebook was how I was going to make that money. So that was not a super huge revenue stream. And then I wrote articles, which again was not super huge. I wrote a regular column for like women's health that they paid me for, but it gave me very little traffic back. I hated it. I don't like writing articles on like three tips for spring. So it just felt like, oh, I was constantly writing it an hour before the deadline. It was never what I ultimately wanted to do. Number 12, we already touched on that was hosting or on camera work. What I want to say here is it's not to me so much even about hosting on a camera, but what unique skill set can you embrace because you're a brand or a personality or an expert? So for me, my background was in musical theater. Hosting and on camera stuff totally makes sense for me. But if you have fear of public speaking, that might not be your thing, but maybe you are a great illustrator and like, that's not your business, but you somehow incorporate that into what you do, you know, or you're a poet or a songwriter. What's the other little hidden talent you have that once a brand finds out about it, they're like, oh, well, that's interesting. Like, how could we loop that in? So I did the on-camera hosting for the show that we mentioned earlier for Hearst Media and After that, it just sort of became a little bit like my acting career where I was like, I could keep trying to go on these auditions, but I'm right back to being an actor. I could go on a hundred auditions and never book a job. And then that's all that time I've spent away from the office doing other work. And so a lot of my decisions about money just came down to 
how can I make the most money the fastest, the easiest? I've got to pay my rent next month. Booking a show is not going to pay it next month because even if I book the show, they're not going to start paying me, you know, until we start filming, which is two months from now. So a lot of my decisions were really based on, I just had to survive on a monthly basis. I'm now getting a publicist and moving into the on-camera stuff, which is what I've always known I ultimately wanted to do, but I had to be really patient in the beginning because I knew it was what was going to bring me the most joy, but it wasn't going to bring me the most money the fastest. So I had to like delay that ultimate desire until my business was profitable. And now I have the freedom to pursue those pursuits a little more. Does that make sense? I totally get that. I'm working on a project right now, which I don't know if I've announced it yet (laughs) on the podcast by this point or not. I needed to pay the bills leading up to that. And so my course has helped me get to this place where now I can have that freedom to work on these longer range projects that aren't going to pay out as quickly as rent is due. Yeah. I just really believe you have to be such a savvy business person to look at it like that. And I think a lot of the conversation around entrepreneurship which I do love, has so much to do with our heart and our zone of genius and like what lights you up? How can you bless the world? And it's all so true, but you can't bless the world if you can't pay your rent and you can't buy your groceries. It is really possible to get swept up in, but that's not my zone of genius. That's not the way I can bless the world the most. So I'm going to say no and hold out for that higher thing And then ultimately have to go back and get a day job and not have any time to bless the world because I ran out of money. So it's this real chess game of the back and forth between what's going to make you the most money, the easiest, the fastest, that brings you the most joy. And kind of having to wrestle with sometimes the most joy part has to be the more delayed because you need the money faster. But then on the other hand, if there's no joy in it, you're going to burn out and quit and realize this whole running business thing sucks. So it's a very delicate balance and there's not a map. There's not an equation. My best advice is it is like an ish show. The first few years of running a business. I just don't think there's any way around that. If anyone else has done it marvelously gracefully, kudos to you, round of applause. But I feel like it's like being a single parent of triplets. There's just no way that you're not going to be like, I have food on my shirt. I lost my glasses. They're on my head. I haven't slept. All I keep talking about on Facebook is the fact that my baby's pooped. Like nobody else wants to hear that, but it's, it's what's happening in my life. I don't think there's any way glamorously and gracefully. And I think that's represented even in, oh my gosh, Hillary gave me 16 ways. Well, which way do I start with? Eh, you're probably going to pick a wrong one at some point. You're going to do something that doesn't make money. You're going to say yes to something and then wish you had it. Everyone does. <laughs> yes. I call it pruning the bush. You just got to grow the bush and then prune it back after you figure out what works. And I feel like a lot of the first years of business are opening doors and then closing them because you realize it's not what you want to do. Yes. I love both of those analogies. My last two categories here, one is brand consulting and partnerships. So this again is one that has been huge for Jesse and has just been a little side thing for me. The question here for me would be, what can you bring to the table for brands on their site or yours? Like what knowledge do you have to share with brands, with companies, companies that have a bigger budget than other solopreneurs that might be buying your e-course? The two things that were here for me, 13 and 14, 13 was working for a brand on their site 
I worked for a site for Keep that's similar to Pinterest, but well curated. It's Pinterest, but everything is shoppable. And they felt like they were going to launch bigger if they had curated keepers so that everything on the site was really beautiful as opposed to really janky. So if you went to the site and you were like, meh, I don't see anything here versus, oh my gosh, I want everything on this page. They hired me. I think they just Googled. I have no idea. They called me. I was like, I don't want to take this meeting. This sounds like spammy. I don't know what this is. I seriously almost didn't take the meeting. And then they were like the nicest people. And it was like such a fun, easy job. And I was like, yes, you can pay me to play on Pinterest basically. So that was something that, again, just like lasted for a little season, was a blessing to have that little bit of retainer payment every month. And then number 14 for me is representing a brand on social media. Keep sent me to South by Southwest to Instagram for them. I shot the Nordstrom September catalog with Jesse and eight other Instagrammers. Uh, I did a campaign for Glade. For me, because Instagram was already my jam, I'm not getting paid to tweet for people or just me on Facebook or Pinterest. I'm not a pinfluencer, but Instagram was my jam. And so I've been able to kind of leverage that. But again, we're talking smaller amounts of money, not your retirement plan, which that's like always my line is, is your business or blog your retirement plan? Or is this like a paid hobby for a few years? Those revenue streams for me were not going to be my retirement plan. And then the final category is affiliates, which is how can you monetize your blog traffic, your mailing list, your social media following to sell other people's products? There's the traditional way that a lot of style bloggers know, or just a lot of blogger types in general. You have affiliate links, you know, underneath your outfit post. Where did you get that skirt or that purse? Link through to here. Um, you have sidebar ads. You know, maybe it's to an Etsy shop. You might have a sponsored post. Like this was brought to you by whatever ingredient I'm using in this recipe. And they asked me to create a recipe with it. That for me has totally not been a revenue stream. It's like made me pennies. For Jessie, it's totally huge. Like that's her jam. What has been huge for me is affiliates as far as other products. So Marie Forleo's B-School, Sarah Jenks's Live More, Way Less, other programs where I said, this is exactly what my audience asks me for, and I don't offer it or teach it or help in this way, but I know someone really genius who does, so I'm going to really throw my support behind her because I really believe in her higher price point product, and I'm really going to put a lot of energy into walking my students through that program, helping them make a decision, offering them a bonus for using my affiliate link, as opposed to just, here's a link to J. Crew if you want to buy something. Like it's sort of a very different level usually of, I'm sending multiple emails, I'm offering bonuses. Like I really become a partner along with that other entrepreneur, as opposed to sidebar ad, people click through, I have nothing to do with it. That for me has been a really great revenue stream. But I think in both of those, there's definitely caution to be used. Really pay attention. I think so many people with blogs, and if you want to monetize your blog, Jessie is your girl. But I think so many people put up, I see this with a lot of my clients, they've got all these ads all over their blog. And when I actually ask them, they're hardly making them any money. But what they're doing is driving traffic away from their site. Now they're not on your website anymore. They're over on J. Crew or they're over on Geico or whatever the ad is for, or that Etsy shop. So before you drive away traffic, make sure it's really making you money. And the same thing for partnering with these other brands. Like if you're constantly selling your audience other people's products, 
you're just going to feel salesy. Whereas for me, I have only three products that I promote and it's because they're the top three things my audience comes to me on. And I say no to a lot of other things. Like just because someone asks you to be an affiliate does not mean you should see dollar signs and be like, Ooh, that'd be an easy way to make money because you you're sending your people to someone else's list, someone else's website. If you tell them to buy someone else's product this week, You can't tell them to buy your product next week or they're going to be like, oh my gosh, all this girl does is sell me. So I really think there's a lot of wisdom and restraint in doing that. And then especially on the blog side, if you want to be legit about it, hire Jessie, do a session with her, actually figure out how to make it a really seriously legit revenue stream or don't do it. I don't do affiliate links on on my style posts anymore. I don't do sidebar ads. It just wasn't making me enough money. It was one of the things that totally got cut first in the business coach purge. (laughs) What have you learned and what would you recommend for people that are like, oh my God, I'm already overwhelmed at 16. Where do I start? Like I said, there is an element for which it's just going to be messy. It's going to be trial and error. You totally validated that, Jess, with like, you got to grow the bush and then prune it back. You've got to knock on all the doors and then see which ones really you're meant to walk through. So I think it is a little bit of a crapshoot in the beginning. And you can't follow in anyone else's footsteps. You could take my three main revenue streams right now and try to duplicate them in your own genre, but they might not work. Maybe teaching is not your jam. That's not what you're great at. Jesse doesn't do much teaching. That's totally my jam. Jesse does speaking. I'm a good speaker and Jesse's a good teacher. It's just not what we were really able to take off with. I think there has to be a sense of grace with yourself, patience, knowing that there's not some really obvious map that you're missing or some foolproof equation. It does involve a lot of hustle. It really involves a lot of business savvy and acumen as well. Look at your numbers. What's the money you're you're making? What's the money you're spending? Which things are driving traffic? Which things are taking way too much time in your week and not giving you enough ROI, return on investment? But I think ultimately, there's also on the next level, multiple options. I know people with great successful businesses that do one thing. They have one program or product, they launch it once a year, and that's it. Then there's people like Bethany Frankel with the Skinny Girl brand. She has like so many things. Like she's, you know, she sells shapewear and cocktails and Pilates DVDs. She's doing a million things, whereas Oprah for years had just the Oprah show. Both of them are icons. They both have totally different ways that they monetize. So I think even there, there isn't one way, but I would say because I may not be your ideal person, seek out who those businesses are that you do want to model yourself after. And I would look at both how they're making money in terms of like what skill sets does it play off of? Like they are more of a teacher. They are more one-to-one. They are more one-to-many. What lights you up? What are your strengths? And make sure that you aren't modeling yourself after someone who has a huge speaking component when you have stage fright. There's no reason to work that hard to have to overcome it. Just find those examples of people to really follow in their footsteps. I know I don't want as many things as Bethany. She looks freaking exhausted to me on her reality show, and it's not how I want to live my life. (laughs) And I think that has a lot to do with the fact that she has such a huge business. But I would have been bored doing a television show every single day for 30 years like Oprah. So I need something in the middle. So I think find those 
people who are monetizing in a way that lights you up, that makes sense to you, that feels good to you. And the other thing that's really hard to know, but is my desire for people is to know what people's lives are like behind the scenes, because I think it's so easy to be like, that girl totally has my dream business and life, but you don't know behind the scenes that like her marriage is totally crumbling because she works 18 hour days or her kids are kind of a hot mess because they're completely neglected or it looks like she's really popular on Instagram, but she's barely profitable. And so she's racking up debt and living off of credit. That's such hard advice to give because I don't know how to tell you how to find that out other than to go on the not fast journey of developing relationships and like having more friends that do this, that are your colleagues, women that I really looked up to two years ago, I'm now in a mastermind with and they're my colleagues and I know they're behind the scenes. I know the hours they work. I know the money I make. I know the state of their marriages and their children and their health and wellness because we're really honest about that. And so I now don't have this vision of, oh, everyone just must be working so little and their lives must be so great. And it's not that anyone's being inauthentic online. It's not necessarily appropriate to talk about your marital challenges if you're a health coach. That doesn't mean that woman's lying by making everything seem really positive and health-oriented on her Instagram, but you might not know behind the scenes what her profit margin is. Like how high is her overhead? Okay, she said she made six figures, but if she made 100,000 and it cost her 90,000 to get there, six figures is not that fancy when you made $10,000 for the year. And those are the things that I wish there was a better way to know them. And I think the best advice I can give is just be savvy enough to be seeking that out, not to be trying to dig into anyone's behind the scenes, but be like, that's my ultimate goal is I'm going to have more friends a few years ago from now that I really know the truth. They're building lives like I want to live. And if I don't want to be exhausted, I've got friends that are successful and not exhausted. Or if they're successful but exhausted, I've got to figure out how do I do that better. What are you grappling with right now in your business or in in your life in general? What's challenging? Yeah. So where we're at right now is we really have hit this new level. For us, I gave you 16 ways I made money over three, three and a half years. And we've now reined it into just three things, style and stylability, Instagram with intention, and happy hour coterie. Since tightening that up, reining that in and kind of cutting all that fat, our revenue has skyrocketed. We're now at a phase where for the first time ever, I'm not sprinting to the next launch, which of course is a really wonderful place to be at. And this may be another one of those places where you want to like bot me in the nose, but I think eventually you'll be grateful that you're like, Hillary told me this is going to happen. Like once you get past that first level where you're like, I just got to be profitable and not exhausted anymore. You get there and then you're like, okay, now I'm really acutely aware of all the other stuff that I've been neglecting. (laughs) And now there's so much more when it comes to organizing and up-leveling and it almost doesn't feel as fulfilling. Like what I'm struggling with is the emotion of I've lived my whole life going at a full hundred foot all the way down on the gas pedal. But I know I don't want to live my whole life like that. 
if I try to go a little bit off the gas pedal to like 50%, my instincts just go back and I go to 100. It's like if you're trying to lose weight and you're like, well, I'll just eat one cookie after dinner. Yeah, you're probably going to end up eating two or three. Even if you didn't eat five, it's really hard to like break that. So what I'm in a new season of is trying to be as close to zero as humanly possible. My word every single day is easy. What is the easiest thing I could do? What is the easiest choice I could make? How could we do less? Like, I feel like I had to get like gastric bypass surgery. The only way for us to get from overeating to a healthy weight is to like shrink the stomach of my business because I've got to reset to a new normal. I was in musical theater. That was a constant hustle. I never had any money. I was a new entrepreneur. That was a constant hustle. I never had any money. So I've literally never been an adult where I wasn't proving to myself that I could work hard and hustle and survive in big, bad New York City, pursuing my dreams, little old me. Now I'm like, okay, I've reached that plane and I've got two choices. I could either stay in the bondage of the weight addiction, the food addiction, the spending addiction, whatever it is that people grapple with in life. There's a reason statistically why people don't lose weight. People who get out of jail tend to go back. People who are in abusive relationships can't get out. Like there's a deep psychology there. And for me, I want to break free of the bondage of busyness and overwhelm and acting from a place of fear, scarcity mentality around money. And so I am just like declaring to anyone in my life who will listen as though I was like, I used to be an alcoholic and I haven't had a drink in five days. I haven't had a drink in five and a half days. I haven't had a drink in six days. Like I'm just having to shout it from the rooftops and really fight in the same way that someone would have to fight through weight loss to break that bondage of busyness and that adrenaline that comes from running your life at a hundred. I need to like be okay without those dopamine rushes and remember that I used to be a girl who likes to read novels. (laughs) So I know that that might sound a little bit annoying if you're like, oh my gosh, but I'm still in hustle mode. Your life sounds so much easier, but I really do hope that when you get to that point, you'll be like, oh, thank God someone warned me that it can be just as hard to break out of that mode and really fight for the life balance that you want. That's kind of where I'm at right now. I overworked just through the last six months. Actually, this will probably be for those that are listening to this because this is coming up in money month in June. I'll say that we're recording this in April and I'm just coming out of, you know, coming back into season two for the show. But those six weeks I had to take off where the shifting is a similar thing that you're talking about. I had push, push, push too hard, had nothing left to give because I had stopped investing in any other area of my life Yes, <laughs> to the point where there's total exhaustion and burnout. Now I'm having to come back into it in this calmer, more sustainable way. And all of that hustle that we've done, like you with all of your launches and mine with Life with Intention, have got us to this place where we're no longer in that cycle of constant hunting. There's more of a, it's like weirdly like bigger waves either way, I guess, but the bigger wave can sustain you longer so that you have time to figure out a more sustainable pace overall. Absolutely. Okay. So what would you tell someone who is just starting out on this journey? My best advice that I haven't shared so far would be to do everything you can to not go it alone in the process. I didn't have any friends that were doing this. I didn't have a lot of community And I didn't feel like I had money to hire a coach or to join a mastermind. 
And I now realize that if I had found a way to prioritize that financially for me, I would have gotten to this level of breathing room more quickly. Yes, we limited my revenue streams, but that happened because I got a coach. And then yes, we've 10x our launches, but that happened because I had the team in place. And so really for me, hiring a business coach, a strategist, getting in a mastermind, up-leveling my team, those are the things that have so changed my life. And not even that, but being more vulnerable with the friends that I did have who are in this business, being more honest about, I'm totally having a breakdown today. As soon as I would say it, then they would say, no way, that seriously happened to me last night. And I'd be like, oh, so I'm not weak. (laughs) I shouldn't be ashamed. I'm not failing. It's not because I'm not smart enough or strong enough. And the more that I've been more vulnerable with other women, specifically women in my life, that really get it, that aren't my friends who are like, a hairstylist and a teacher who are like, we'll totally listen to you and pat your back, but we have no idea what you're talking about. It's the same way that if you're the only mom amongst all your single girlfriends, you've got to have other mom friends because you're like, I get so angry with my child when she wakes up at 3 a.m. And you're like, I can't say that to someone who doesn't have kids, but you say it to another mom, which I don't have kids. I'm just making that up. But it would make sense to me that you say it to another mom and she's like, oh my God, I've so felt that before. And you're like, oh, thank God I'm not a horrible mother for having that thought. Like, I just was so tired. You need that outlet. And I just didn't have that outlet. And as a result, I burned out a lot of my other friendships. Picture being the only single mom and you're constantly saying to your single girlfriends, could you watch my baby? Could you take my baby? I have another crisis. Could you help me with my baby? Your friend eventually would be like, I can't co-parent this with you. Like, I'm so sorry. (laughs) And I now realized, like, I needed a mommy group for entrepreneurs. And it can be unpaid. It can be just seeking out those friendships. They take time. You know, Jesse and I met, and it was over a year before we really connected. And it was still, like, another year or so after that before we really got into a truly supportive place of really knowing about our full lives and being able to tell each other now not just about our business but about a personal, you know, crisis that's happening. So it takes patience. Sometimes it takes the money of having to hire the coach or join the paid mastermind. But I feel so much less crazy now that I am not alone. Oh, I love that. Hillary, you have just dropped a knowledge bomb on us <laughs> today. Thank you, thank you, thank you for all of your amazing wisdom. I am so honored to have you here, and I can't wait for everyone to listen to Jesse finish out this topic with us next week. So thank you, Hillary. I know. I can't wait to tune into hers. And there you have it. Hillary, thank you so much for coming on the show, and thank you for listening. If you'd like to send Hillary a message, since she's so big on Instagram, I would say the best place to go is over there at Hillary Rushford, H-I-L-A-R-Y. And of course, if you want to find me on Instagram or Twitter, you can do so at Jess C as in cinnamon lively. If you'd like to get the show notes and the free printable for this episode and the second part of this episode, you can go over to JessLively.com slash Hillary Rushford. Before I share a sneak peek of next week's show and who's coming up, let's talk with Katie Bryant in a mini interview about Squarespace. Hey, Katie, thank you so much for coming on the show. Hey, Jess, thanks for having me. Tell us a little bit about yourself. 
Uh, my name is Katie Bryant, and I'm a photographer based in Athens, Georgia. I'm a mom to two little boys and um, a wife. Right now, I'm focused mostly on wedding photography with an emphasis on some education for creatives through a, a workshop called Gather Workshop in Atlanta. So how long have you been in the photography wedding business? I've been in it for five years. A lot of weddings, a lot of Saturdays. <laughs> So let's talk about your website, katiebryant.com. What's it about and how did you get started with it? My website is mostly used for my portfolio of images. And I got started with Squarespace because I had a number of other websites as I started my business and then got a website custom designed for me by a web designer and found that the process was really hard for me because I wanted a lot more creative control than that. And every time I wanted something changed, I would need to email her and wait on her timeline, which I totally understand. But I wanted something that was very living and breathing and up to date and current. And so when someone Someone told me about Squarespace. It was the first time I could pull all my ideas and have creative control over my website. One of the things I noticed since I first saw your website is that it looks a little different. How come it looks different today? Because I had too much fun last night. And I discovered when I was looking on Squarespace's site that they have come up with cover pages, which are basically just entry points into your website that are really simple. And I fell in love with all the cover pages. So I probably tried all of them last night on my website. <laughs> <laughs> you, you were just putting them on the site and then seeing what it looked like and then taking it back down? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I loved it. And I would try different fonts and different images just to get the right combination of everything. I love that they have done this because it just creates a very clean storefront to your site. Can you mix your cover pages with the templates that you're using so it looks different for you versus someone else? For sure, for sure. Because that's one thing that I'm always very aware of. Do all sites look the same? Can you tell? But this one had lots of customized different templates within the template you're already using. So you could use even for people in different industries like music and photography, you can mix it up and have multiple pictures. It doesn't have to look as simple as mine does right now. But yeah, so there's a lot of, again, creative control that I think is amazing. So what would you recommend for other people who are thinking about building a new blog or website? I definitely recommend checking out Squarespace. And one thing that I don't think people take advantage of enough is to look at all the ways that the Squarespace sites are used. They offer on there different artists, different creatives, different businesses. If you look through the way that the sites are done, you can see that there's so much more than just a navigation bar and photos. There's buttons, there's links, there's all sorts of neat sidebar elements. You probably wouldn't even know how much you could do with a site until you see a bunch of sites and how different they can look. And so I just think you get Squarespace, but it's not enough just to do it once. You got to keep going back and seeing how can you freshen it up. And they're coming up with such new and great ideas that it's an awesome way to really stay on top of things with your website. That's awesome. And you don't have to pay more each time they come out with a new feature? No, it's great. You pay and it's done. And every new feature, it's just up to you to, to have fun with it. For anyone else out there who's excited to start trying new cover pages like Katie or getting started with their website, you can go over to squarespace.com slash lively and start your free 14-day trial. If you like what's going on there and you get your site up where you want it to be or it's on its way, you can then enter the code lively at checkout to get 10% off your service going forward. So it's a great deal to get started. It's a great deal to go forward with it. And Katie, where can people find you online? On Instagram, they can find me at Katie Bryant, K-A-I-T-I-E-B-R-Y-A-N-T, -I -E and online at www.katiebryant.com. Thank you so much for coming on this show. Your site is gorgeous, and I really appreciate your advice here. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me. 
And now for a sneak peek on next week's show. Next week, as I mentioned, Jessie Arteague of styleandpepper.com is coming on to share her ways that she has made money online over the years in her business, especially if you're a blogger looking to monetize. Jessie's episode is going to be particularly helpful. Until then, may something wonderful happen to you today. 